Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It sure seems like it's been a while since I was on the air last, and I will admit it has. But it hasn't been extremely long, but sometimes it does feel that way. But I am glad to be on the air, and I will say that uh, we are not too far from the end to Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution Southern Campaign. Now, when I was on the air last, we uh, discussed uh, part one of the uh, battle uh, developing. That is the actual battle developing. We are now going to be in part two, and I will say that we, it would be fair to say that in part two, we will have uh, graduated from the beginning of the battle development to uh, really the overall climactic ending of the battle, and not just the overall uh, climactic ending of the battle, but how the uh, British resurgence evolved and what really um, lied in store um, in the midst of uh, in the midst of the American army having to retreat. In other words, this battle is one that um, saw the Americans start strong. But we are going to uh, find out here in this podcast uh, segment just how dramatically the momentum changed. But based upon what I'm saying, based upon how I could be saying all this to you, many of you all are thinking to yourselves, are the Americans coming away as, um, as the defeated party? I will have to say that when I read this book, I know I could be giving away an answer now. But based upon my readings or my findings in this book uh, about Utah Springs, I really felt that uh, both sides, it, it really, to me, it was more of a draw. But in order to understand how it came out to be a draw, meaning that there was no clear-cut winner, we have to understand what took place before reaching our final uh conclusion uh, as to why this battle, in the eyes of historians, really was more of a draw. So let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and get prepared for this um, next uh, podcast segment to Utah Springs, the final battle of the American Revolution's Southern Campaign by Robert M. Dunkerley and Irene Boland. But before we uh, start off with our leadoff question, I just remembered something very important. And I may have forgotten to have mentioned it to you all when I was on the air last. But if, I, if, but if I did mention it, that's great, so pardon me if I do mention it again. Tomorrow, of course, is Thursday. What was important about last Thursday, the 8th of September? Well, I know for one, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. I still can't believe she's gone. I mean, to think that she ruled, uh, that she was on the throne for 70 years. I mean, think about what she had seen in her lifetime. I mean, she, her first prime minister was Winston Churchill. She lived under 15 prime ministers. She lived, un, she lived under 14 uh, U.S. presidents during her reign. And to think when she was born in 1926, um, you know, World War One had ended eight years before, and three years after she was born, the United States entered what we now know as the Great Depression. 
but for Queen Elizabeth to have been on the throne for 70 years, I don't know if we'll ever know of another monarch who will sit on the throne for as long as she did. However, I also, I also strongly believe, and I think many of you all uh, whom are older than me would probably say the same thing too, that had her uncle being Edward VIII, had he not abdicated the throne, I don't know, um, it might be fair to say, not to sound political or anything, but it might be fair to say that had Edward VIII never abdicated the throne, that he would have um, been as much of an appeaser as um, Neville Chamberlain was, who was uh, Prime Minister of England um, around the time that um, Adolf Hitler's uh, Nazi forces had invaded Poland and uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, Neville Chamberlain appeased um, Hitler, that is, he supported Hitler's decisions to invade um, Eastern Europe, and look what happened. So I do believe that if Edward VIII was on the throne by the time World War, World War II began, he would have appeased Hitler as well. And who's to say that uh, Queen Elizabeth... Who's to say that she might have ever had the opportunity to sit on the throne? I mean, her father, uh, George VI, took over um, at a time when, uh, when, when better leadership was needed on the throne. And, you know, George VI died in 1952, and what do you know? Queen Elizabeth II was only 26 years old. I can't imagine... Uh, being a monarch just under the age of 30 and ascending the throne. It's a very daunting challenge, to say the least, but she uh, she did it with grace, did it with uh, dignity. Uh, if there, As one reporter said, if there was one constant norm in this uh, troubling and unsettling world that we live in, and I, and I know I shouldn't say that, but that is the reality, if there, if there was one constant norm in the world, it was Queen Elizabeth II, and that is now a norm. Her death now presents a forgotten norm, and I say this because Queen Elizabeth II was not a... She didn't make sarcastic remarks. She treated people the way they wanted to be treated. Of course, no ruler is can ever be 100% perfect, but she always um, did everything... Um, with the utmost respect, in my opinion. I'm sorry that I never got the chance to um, to see her and Prince Philip, but I have no doubts that there were um, that there were plenty of people in the world who did get to uh, see the king, to see uh, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip up close in person. So, uh, uh, so we have lost a um, a very um, important um, figure in this in, in per the world that uh, we live in. But another important thing that happened on uh, September the 8th, it, it didn't happen last week, it happened 241 years ago, the Battle of Utah Springs. And here we are learning about a forgotten battle that truly did have an important um, role to play in the American Revolutionary War, but for years had been overlooked by everything that happened at, uh, at Yorktown. Not that Yorktown, Virginia, or the siege of Yorktown, rather, was important. It was. But, but we will ultimately learn 
before it's all said and done with why Utah Springs was important. If we don't learn that, then what what's the point in having um, having done a uh, behind the scenes um, report or investigation story rather behind this battle? So, anyways, how about we go ahead and proceed forward with our uh, lead off uh, question? Despite discipline and morale coming apart within the American Army, and we sure did learn that in the last uh, podcast segment discipline and morale coming apart in the midst of all the uh, fighting around the brick house, the barn, and the fortified garden, or what we might think of as the palisaded garden. Despite the discipline and morale coming apart within the American army, did the American troops, or let alone did the army itself, still have some fight left in them around the confines where the brick house, the barn, and the fortified garden stood? Believe it or not, folks, the American army still did have some fight left in them. That's, that is a good sign. However, um, well, I should say that one of the reasons why, the, one reason or the primary reason behind, why, behind the fact why they still had some uh, fight in them was because they had two six-pound guns along with two extras that had originally belonged to the British. They believed with these extra guns, in terms of artillery, that they would be able to... Um, wreak havoc on the brick house that the cannonball the cannonballs would be able to uh, penetrate through to where it might cause the uh, brick house itself to uh, be set ablaze with the tr with enemy troops inside now that sounds uh, evil and all but think about this you've been all the, we've seen a dramatic 360 reversal and if you still have some fight left in left in you, then do whatever it takes to lay it on the line. However, even with with these best of intentions, that is, with two six-pound guns and two extras uh, that originally belonged to the enemy and now in in the American troops' uh, hands, despite the best intentions with the four pieces at hand. American troops suddenly came under deadly fire from the brick house, the barn, and the garden. North Carolina Continentals, who manned the guns, endured the heaviest of casualties. The heavy firing by the British prevented the Americans from firing back. You know, getting a cannon prepared... It's not like turning a light switch on or off. You've got to have someone at one end of the cannon. You've got to have people from behind. You've got to make sure that um, it's really about four or five men to do the job. And so if that's the case, you've got to make sure that everything is right with that cannon before firing a, a cannonball off. So do you really think that the Americans, with their best intentions with these guns, that they could have um, done all of this, given what was really at front of them, in front of them? Uh, no. You know, yes, there was a break in the fighting, but it's a short-lived break. Because sometimes it's best if one party doesn't use up all their ammunition right away. Sometimes it's good to rotate the troops, Okay. One set of troops have fired X number of rounds. Now bring the next group in line to fire at the enemy. That's probably what happened within the confines of the brick house 
not just inside the brick house, but around the brick house as well, and also with the uh, barn and the garden. The British are firing from different uh, directions in the, in the greater encampment, but the bottom line is they've got the enemy, in their eyes, of course, in the eyes of the British, the enemies, the Americans, but remember the Americans, their formations have come apart because of all the objects surrounding them, you know, that is the tents, rope, um, how do I say, it? there's other, um, there's just a plethora of objects that have basically um, broken up their formations that have led to not intentional distractions, but distractions to where, okay, you know, leaders are down, or our, some of our commanders are down, we're tired, we didn't expect the fighting to get to this point, exhaustion is gradually setting in, so once all this confusion is kicking in, the enemy being the British, now have, a, now have all the more advantage in the world to pour on deadly fire to where the Americans now don't know how to respond. Major Henry Sheridan of the New York Volunteers, and we've certainly called out his name quite a bit, he is the one that truly, in the eyes of the British here at Utah Springs, and I have to give him credit, Major Henry Sheridan of the New York Volunteers was responsible for making a stand in and around the brick house that saved the British Army. The British troops were able to regroup and re-enter the battle. The brick house stood as a vital rallying point for an army that was already on the run. Without the brick house, including the barn and the fortified or palisaded garden, Major Sheridan's New York Volunteers couldn't have made their stand. You know, it's one thing when an army's in retreat, but how far should an army go to avoid, um, to avoid further annihilation? In other words, it's one thing to retreat, but, if, but wouldn't it be fair to say that leadership should know ahead of time, if they're familiar with the terrain, that, okay, this is where we're gonna. This is where we're gonna start pulling back if we're under heavy fire, but this is where we're going to meet as our final retreat spot. We're gonna meet at, at, at say point B, and once we meet here, we're gonna split up into groups and not concentrate all of our forces in the center. So if the enemy is chasing us in our retreat. We have enough time to realign, regroup, and we can fire from different directions to where the enemy might, might not even know what's coming at them as they're pursuing us down. This is probably, you know, it's one thing to have advantage of a house. And we're not talking a house that's the equivalent of, of a house that would be in suburbia. This brick house had to have been some kind of impressive structure to have held... Um, a fair number of British soldiers. I mean, the whole, not every soldier could have been inside this house, but it had to have been impressive enough to where, um, to where there was enough um, visibility from inside to be able to fire at the enemy and be able to still get hit your target and be able to reload. Because think about it, if you're firing a musket, you probably are getting off two or three shots um, per minute. And then you've got to reload 
Okay, so while you're reloading, you might need to have somebody else covering for you. But it is important in any time of uh, war or battle to have a vital rallying point if you're on the run. So for Major Sheridan, the brick house is the savior. Without the brick house, who's to say where they would have uh, been able to have um, coordinated a spot for a counterattack assault? In the midst of heavy fighting, did British Commander Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart get hit by American fire? Uh, believe it or not, folks, he did. Lieutenant Colonel Stewart got wounded in the left arm. You know, it's easy sometimes to think that when you get shot right away, that it's life-threatening, that you're just not going to be able to, um, to fight anymore to where you pretty much have to go, <laughs> like the equivalent of retreating to the sidelines. But I often have to be reminded that, um, that sometimes when one got shot, it wasn't always fatal. You know, just because you got shot in the arm, I mean, depending on where you're getting shot in the arm, I mean, it, it could be, um, it could lead to something fatal. But soldiers were known to, to fight, even if they had been shot in the arm. That should tell you right there just how, it should probably tell us right there that they probably had a high tolerance level for pain. But we should also be reminded, too, that, um, that the majority of the soldiers who died in the Revolutionary War, and the same could be said for the Civil War, they, for every man who was shot, two or three, another two or three died from disease. So we have to be reminded of the fact that, you know, if you're shot on the battlefield, it's one thing, but if you um, are needing to have surgery to remove a bullet wound, or let alone have a limb amputated, there's a greater likelihood that you're going to probably die from um, infectious diseases than you are from the bullet wound itself, or just let alone from being shot. So for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart, he got wounded in the left arm. It was non-life-threatening, and believe it or not, he <laughs> went about going above and beyond the call of duty and directing his troops to reforming units already broken. So here he is in the midst of, of trying to save his army from total annihilation. Here he is in the midst of risking it all to ensure that there still is some fight left in them as you know they're making their way towards the brick house because Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's not far from the brick house. He's along that um, along the confines that make that lead to the Charleston Road because you know Charleston's not far from Utah Springs. But Lieutenant Colonel Stewart's not going down without a fight. I mean he's still got it left in him to be able to um, direct his troops to including um, reshaping the units that are already broken so that they um, are able to mount a, a counter-attack counter assault. I, I just think it's uh, remarkable, to say the least. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Lee on the American side observed an enormous state of disarray amongst troops from those already wounded to troops disorganized. All were retreating in confusion towards the Charleston Road, but many of them 
gradually uh, returned to the existing fight. Yeah, it, you know, it's one thing to see disarray, but it's fair to say in this case for Lieutenant Colonel Harry Lee, he saw disarray on both sides. I mean, yes, he's an American officer. You know, he is going to be one day the future father to uh, a prominent um, to a prominent person, to a person uh, who is of um, of historical. Um, how do I say it, of um, historical um, importance or uh, someone who, you know, should be learned about. Uh, he, he will be the father of uh, Robert E. Lee, for whom, uh, you know, Robert E. Lee, George Washington, for Washington and Lee um, Univ College in uh, Lexington, uh, Virginia. But uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel H Harry Lee, I can only imagine what he, he along with other officers, um, observed. I mean... It's not just troops being shot, it's troops on the run, not knowing what's going to come next. You know, troops chasing, one side chasing the other down, thinking they've got them. When in fact, they, when in fact the Americans are the ones running into, running into a wall of uh, uncertainty, meaning that they're running into, yes, they're making their way towards that brick house, thinking that, well, they've got the British on the run. Yes, they do have the British on the run. The problem is that what the Americans don't know and didn't know was that there were British troops already in place. Without those reserves of the New York Volunteers, the Americans probably would have gotten the home run, the slam dunk, in securing this brick house. Confusion and disorder grew immensely within the Continental Army ranks, given casualties steadily climbed around open terrain near the Brick House. Well, it is definitely fair to say that confusion and disorder grew immensely within the Continental Army ranks. And it's not just so much soldiers being shot at and, and soldiers being shot and wounded, but when you have officers down... As we learned from the uh, previous podcast, when you have officers whom are down, and there were officers who did lose their lives, officers wounded, armies in the 18th century, and I would think even in today's time, but most notably in the 18th century, what are armies relying upon? They are re relying heavily upon discipline and, and unit group, or what we call cohesion, in the aftermath of the fighting at the Brick House, disorder had become the new norm. You know, it's one thing when one officer gets wounded, but you have a couple of other officers are all of a sudden shot, some of them dead. Who can the soldiers turn to? Who can the soldiers look up to? I mean, it's not about rebellion, but but when your leaders are, are shot at and, and taken out of the fight, who's going to pick up? after them who's going to be able to rally the troops and say hey look we've got to go we've got to press on you know this is what um captain jones i'm going to use as an example captain jones or captain smith would want us to be doing right at this moment let's do this for for our for our fallen um officers i'm sure many soldiers did have the fight to keep on fighting but 
but once and once the leader is shot at and no longer in the action, then discipline and cohesion that us we ourselves mentality it it doesn't take much for it to come apart. You know, we've gone we we've done away with I me myself, we're in us we ourselves us we ourselves mode, but even at its highest um level it can be shattered when leaders are are taken out of the fight what is looting i believe many of you all know what looting is but it was mentioned in the book and for some of you who don't know what looting is i'll be more than happy to tell you what that term is looting is an act of stealing goods from a place from a particular place, most notably in times of war, and believe it or not, including riots. We have seen um, throughout history, of course I know even that alone is vague, but we have seen um, events that have obviously had profound impacts, not just on, say, one group of people, but on multiple um, ethnicities or multiple uh, peoples in general, where, for example, if it results in a riot, uh, people will take matters into their own hands, uh, civilians will, and they will um, destroy uh, businesses. And by destroying businesses, they are taking the, the, biz they are taking the businesses' uh, goods without their consent. Is it fair to say that uh, acts of looting did take place within the British camp by American troops. Yes, it did. However, this is different. In 1781, we're not talking about stealing someone's um, personal possessions. We're not talking about stealing someone's um, top-of-the-line top items from their tent. We have to remember that... Uh, the weather is very um, humid at this time in South Carolina. I mean, it's probably got to be between 85, 90 degrees. You know, we don't have any um, Aquafina bottled water on hand. We don't have any Gatorade. We don't have any Powerade, uh, Red Bull energy drinks. So many of these soldiers are hungry. And believe it or not, in the British camp, there are there's food. I mean, there was food that troops had eaten say earlier that morning but left but were left behind um, for whatever reason it could have been that they were left behind maybe as a means of luring the enemy into a trap but the bottom line is there was food left behind and so you can't blame the Americans on one hand for being so hungry to where they needed something to eat because after all they have been fighting for more than an hour which is very unheard of so, this kind of looting um, was obviously in a time of war, but it's not anything of a riotous activity. So, acts of looting by American troops did take place within the British camp not long after British troops started making way of cover into the brick house. And it might be fair to say that for some of the American troops, they thought that the British had just given up. Okay, they're on the run. 
Let's uh, ransack the camp. Let's see what we can have in terms of extra provisions. Let's see uh, what we can do to throw them off even more. But what the Americans don't realize, obviously, is that, okay, here they are in the camp, but yet what, what's nearby being that um, brick house, barn, and the palisaded garden are, are the troops, the enemy troops, whom have uh, regrouped, reformed, and they're getting ready to pour a devastating, not just a devastating, but, but getting ready to pour on uh, multiple um, devastating rounds of fire. So looting alone, it, it did cause some dis. I guess it would be fair to say that the looting did cause some disruption. But historians do know, and based upon what I read in the book, that the looting alone was not entirely responsible for the greater collapse in General Green's um, army. Okay, so if it wasn't entirely responsible for the collapse in General Green's um, ranks, is it fair to say that those officers whom were not hit, in other words, they were not shot at, they were you know still alive, were there officers uh, present on site whom gave different accounts of what ensued beyond the British encampment? Sure, there were different um, accounts. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It could have been both. Um, but there, but uh, those officers whom were not shot at did um, give different accounts of what uh, ensued beyond the British encampment. But by this point in time, folks, the American troops are thirsty. They are worn out. They never expected this battle to even be up to an hour. They knew that they could that they were in for a fight. They knew that okay, they may have had more, they may have had more resources than the British. But it probably was fair to say that they knew that the British were going to give them everything they had. But I think it's also fair to say that the Americans never anticipated that uh, an attack would come from uh, the brick house. Sometimes you never know where the attacks will occur when least expected. How did uh, General Nathaniel Green respond per letters he wrote to fellow officer colleagues, state governors, including Congress? Well, you know, in the aftermath of the battle, you know, off the, the lead commanding officer in his inner circle, you know, they do have to sit down and talk about what went right, what went wrong. But the lead general, you know, needs to um, report all this to those from high above. Just kind of like how in today's modern times where um, military commanders have to report to the president of the United States. I mean, after all, the president of the United States is the commander in chief. The President of the United States can't declare war. Congress has that um, right, has that um, authority. But for uh, General Green, he mentioned in his letters that the that the American Army's uh, shortcomings at Utah Springs came upon exhaustion, humid weather, along with fierce enemy resistance from the Brick House. I think that's a very um, fair assumption and a proper response to say the least of why these of why there were shortcomings in this battle it had nothing to do with the americans wimping out it had nothing to do with 
not giving it their all. But, you know, we can't control Mother Nature. And is it fair to say that Nathaniel Green has gotten used to weather in South Carolina by now or in the Carolinas since he became commander of the Southern Continental Army back in uh, October of 1780? Yes, he's um, been uh, down in the Southern uh, colonies fighting this war in the uh, Southern uh, theater of the American Revolutionary War since uh, late 1780, but he has seen all the seasons pretty much. But he has, um, it would be fair to say that he has developed um, resistance to this humid weather. But even those whom have come, say, from Maryland and Delaware, probably are not used to this. So, you know, yes, you can train an army all you want, but there are just some things that they may not have control over, and that is the weather. And surprises like the Brick House. The American troops looting the British camp in Green's eyes was rather minor versus the casualties, commanders wounded or killed, confusion, exhaustion, to facing stiff British resistance at the brick house, the barn, and the fortified garden. So yeah, I, there again, I can agree that the uh, looting that took place was rather minor. Not everybody got access to something. Who knows just how many American troops might have um, looted, but the bottom line is that there were uh, there were so many other distractions, and with everything that was around them, yes, I could see how um, formations just got broken apart. It was beyond their control. But as for the casualties, the commanders, the casualties with the troops, the commanders wounded or killed, confusion, and let alone the exhaustion from fighting in the uh, intense heat weather. Yeah, I could see how all of those things were probably of more greater precedent behind the reason for why we weren't able to come away with a slam dunk victory versus uh, the looting. As for the British, uh, there were no British accounts made with regards to references uh, to looting on the part of American troops. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart credited his victory on the grounds that he was able to rally regiments on the verge of breaking down back in line where there still was enough time to mount an attack on the Americans inside the brick house under General Henry Sheridan's command. And yes, had Lieutenant Colonel Stewart not been where he was at the time when he saw his troops, you know, running for their lives in retreat mode, had he not been where he uh, was, who's to say that there would have been an effective um, counter-resurgence attack? Yes, um, Major Sheridan, you know, his presence alone would have been significant, but sometimes even one commander alone can't save everybody from uh, being in a state of panic when they're retreating. So more often than not, it's good to have other leaders, even those whom are the head commanders, stationed nearby to where their presence alone can make all the difference in the world, regardless of side, and modifying the circumstances at hand. The only evidence behind plundering of the British camp 
came from Colonel Otho Holland Williams, who was the lead commander behind the American Army's third Contin three Continental Brigades, whom led Maryland troops through British camp, and he personally witnessed the looting up close. The looting alone by American Army led Colonel Williams to, to become all the more convinced that it, that it had profound that it had profound impact on his troops' abil ability to effectively attack uh, the brick house in the garden. And he's probably right. Had it not been for all of the, um, I guess you would call it debris or just everything that was um, in place leading up to getting around the confines of the brick house, had all of that stuff not been in the way, there might have been time to have... Um, assembled the cannons maybe but it's not a hundred percent sure but there is a possibility that maybe the number of men wounded and killed could have been reduced there are a lot of what-ifs in battles but it could have very well been that maybe the british wanted to leave the tents like they were maybe the british sought sought out a plan that hey if we leave all the stuff in place here, if we're on the run, the Americans will probably more than likely stop where they are and start ransacking our stuff while we can lure while we can go about luring them into the trap where they're at. We got the brick house, a barn, and a palisaded garden. What do they have in return? Nothing. Sitting ducks. So sometimes uh leaving stuff out in the middle or just out in the open with, within a battlefield is to one side's advantage if if they have already established an encampment there. It's a double-edged sword, but not a bad one, to say the least. And I would definitely have to say that Colonel Otho Holland Williams was right and that, that the looting alone did have an impact on his troops' ability to effectively attack the brick house and the garden, and for nearly two centuries, most historians whom have um, studied Utah Springs have determined that the looting incident alone, including Colonel Williams's inability to turn the tide, still remains the primary factor behind the American Army's inability to crush Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Stewart's British forces once and for all. It sounds like that a battle such as Utah Springs Maybe it was one of those battles that didn't come around often. It might be fair to say that that could be pointed out in another podcast coming up, or another podcast segment, that is. But some, but we do have to be reminded that, you know, battles just don't automatically happen. More often than not, battles are just um, one of those things that sometimes they come by means of uh, freak coincidence, you know, in order for a battle that is a major battle to become one of significant importance, there have to be other skirmishes or other activities that that uh, start out as small, medium before they become uh, that final um, that final uh, critical juncture to where it leads to the big the big thing, meaning the battle. Now, were American troop forces at their limit? a.k.a. breaking point during the British surge movement or attack along the center road where the brick house lied. 
That's a definitive yes. Considering how many troops had gotten killed and wounded, officers out of action to excessive humidity, given how hot the weather had been. So yes, the American troop forces have truly now gotten to this point where they are at the breaking stage. In the midst of American troop forces falling back, they were forced to give up the two six-pounders that they had originally seized or captured from the British. Portions of the New York and New Jersey volunteer um, British regiments recaptured them. Not long after recapturing the two six-pounders did the New York and New Jersey Loyalist volunteers go about using them on the Americans whom were still caught in the crossfire. You know, as they say, as, as much as, as hard as it is to have to give up something that you captured, sometimes you're better off just letting it go. Because, in this case, a six-pounder, the two six-pounders could, well, they could be replaced, but as for your life, can your life be replaced? No, you as an individual can't be replaced. So sometimes you have to give up something in order to ensure that you might have a greater likelihood of surviving. And more often than not, I've learned this at Williamsburg, that the best place in terms of safety, as crazy as it sounds, you were better off being safe on a battlefield than you were in a makeshift hospital. Um, it's not so much a battlefield, but the, uh, but the areas leading up to a battlefield. So for some reason... And it's probably just true. You probably were safer on a battlefield. I don't know why, but but that's what I've learned. So I would take the advice of what the experts um, have told me. Lieutenant Colonel John Howard from the 1st Maryland uh, Regiment reported losing roughly one half of the, of the 190 men he had led into combat. They were either killed or wounded. He also made reference of seven officers being hit, resulting in four dead and three wounded. Those whom survived the fight at the Brick House hurried back, but many fell victim to the New York and New Jersey British Volunteer Charge where they became prisoners. And if I'm not mistaken, they were probably about between 60 and 100 um, American soldiers who became prisoners. You know, it's one thing to be running, it's one thing to be on the run, but it doesn't mean that you might, it doesn't always mean that you're going to be able to out, outrun the enemy. And even, you know, the enemy doesn't always have to be chasing you by horse or by foot. But when a six-pounder um, gets fired on and the cannonball hits the ground and the shock and awe follows afterwards, yeah, you could be thrown for a curveball. You could be thrown off, thrown for a curveball so bad that you could lose your footing. The cannonball could even take your foot off. I mean, these when you when the cannons are fired, it's not like a dart. When they are fired at, they're meant to um, they're meant to um, cause lots of lots of um, what do you call it disarray. That's meant to cause all kinds of problems. Uh, even worse, the grape shot, uh, the the cluster of uh, small uh, one-pounders, one or three-pounders, 
more so one pounders, but they're but they're all packed into a, a unit. But when they are fired upon the the cluster, once released, they are all going in different directions. So yes, you could be running in retreat, but you don't know what's coming from behind you. Not just from a person, but let alone grape shot or cannon. So I can't imagine just how many uh, of these uh, soldiers who eventually became prisoners, you know, here they are trying to flee for their lives, seek some form of higher ground, but yet they're not able to make it. All because of what's behind them, whether it's a person, the enemy chasing them down, or means of um, a six-pounder uh, being fired at them. Given the terrain was primarily flat at Utah Springs, could anyone really see the big picture, <laughs> the main focal point of the battlefield at large? You know, you would think that, okay, if the terrain is primarily flat, that you wouldn't have any trouble really seeing anything. But believe it or not, folks, even the flattest of battlefields does not always guarantee one or 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 those officers at hand or anybody let alone doesn't guarantee anyone having the opportunity to to truly see the big picture 100%. So the answer to that question is no. Uh for starters, the primary officers and yes, the musicians, you know, those uh fife and drummers Many of them were downed. In other words, they got hit. This resulted in greater communication difficulties. Officers from different ranks were moved out over broad areas. Okay, if they're being moved out over broad areas, it's going to be hard for one officer alone just to cover not just one spot, but, but, but an area right next to the spot that he was originally designed to cover. So if you've got people, officers of different ranks, moving out over broader areas and having to cover for those whom have, whom have already been wounded or sadly been killed, have taken prisoner, eventually would be taken prisoner, yeah, it's going to be hard to uh, focus your energy or, or place all your eggs in one basket per uh, one particular area of the battlefield. There's just so much going on to where you just don't know what to expect. Falling back, hence retreat. How did the retreat go about? Well, it turns out that the retreats alone now are coming from smaller groups. These groups had sought shelter, and believe it or not, they had sought shelter, or I should say cover, by hiding in swarms of pine trees, bushes, and within the confines of the enemy camp, but not near the brick house. I know many of you are thinking now, why would you want to hide within the confines of the enemy camp knowing that so many American uh, troops have been slaughtered by British fire from within the brick house, the uh, palisaded garden, and the barn? Well, let's think of this British camp as best as possible as not being like um, your typical, um, typical park. I mean, it's not, it, it may not even be like a football field, because as we know, there's 100 yards in a football field. Uh, I know um, that, yes, while Utah Springs, it's still, 
the battlefield is still there. However, um, there are parts of the battlefield that are not um, that got built up uh, back in the uh, early 1960s, and so therefore there are um, neighborhoods um, that were built back in the 60s in Utahville that once um, were the, that once belonged to the actual uh, site of where the battle took place, but fortunately there has been enough uh, land set aside to where um, Utah uh, Springs Battlefield can still be visited by tourists. And it was added to the National Register of Historic Places back in, I want to say, June of 1970. So, yes, to be hiding in swarms of pine trees in the bushes, hey, you can't go wrong with that. I mean, after all, hiding to me, hiding in swarms of pine trees would be the best way because you can allow yourself to be um, well disguised. You have some enough camouflage to not be uh, caught off by the enemy. But we have to remember that the retreats alone are not just, it's not always everybody rushing in the middle or running in the middle, although it would seem as more often than not, sometimes it is easy to assume that retreats take place when um when the enemy is running, obviously for one they're running, but they're all running in the center. Sometimes that is the case, other times it's not. But if you can um, seek shelter in the midst of your retreat by hiding in swarms of pine trees and bushes, then the, then the greater likelihood that your retreat will be a smooth one in the end uh, so that... Um, there won't be any further uh, losses given already what has been sustained in the midst of um, those of whom are already killed and wounded on the American side. The abundance of foliage and other objects made observations all the more difficult as to what really truly did stand out 100% on the battlefield at large. So think about it. Early September, of course, I know normally September 20, mid-September is when fall usually begins, but we do have to keep in mind, even in the 18th century, seasons, you know, like mid-December is when you know, winter usually starts. But we have to keep in mind that sometimes winter started in November in some places in America. Fall would have started maybe before the end of August. So the bottom line is there's foliage. There's an abundance of foliage, and as we know, there's an abundance of other objects within the um, along the battlefield that have that are making observations in general all the more difficult as to what really did stand out from the battlefield at large. We can only speculate, you know, we can make guesses that are circumstantial, but we have to use our best hindsight. The Maryland and North Carolina Continentals, along with militiamen, marched back to Burdell's plantation. That's where uh, Green's army um, stayed at uh, before uh, marching on to Utah Springs. The retreat was covered by Lieutenant Colonel Wade Hampton's cavalry, including a handful of Delaware and Virginia Continentals. The retreat um, itself went west of the British camp. The Americans pushed back due largely in part to 
Major uh, Coffin's Dragoon's Fierce Charge Assault. Lieutenant Colonel Hampton's forces did reform. Okay, here they are in the midst of a retreat, but, you know, they are... They are reforming in the event they can um, they can um, fire off some rounds and um, get uh, Coffin's forces uh, to retreat back themselves. So Lieutenant Colonel Hampton's forces did reform, and they and by reforming they sent Coffin's dragoons as far back as the fortified garden. Okay, so this is good. This is good. After sending. Um, Coffin's dragoons back to the garden, Lieutenant Colonel Hampton's men fell back towards the furthest part of the forest, where the Utah Springs battle first began. Within the confines of where Hampton's men fell back, also marked an area where multiple charges took place. But the battlefield alone became a site marred by troops both dead and wounded on each side, fallen horses, equipment left behind, to debris that covered the ground immensely. You know, war is not a game. War leaves scars, regardless of who emerges as a victor. And, you know, it, you know it's one thing for one side to lose, but even they too have scars. This battle alone, folks, for, for being a forgotten battle, has um, left a profound impression upon uh, the commanders of both sides. And when we um, are on the air again next, we're going to learn more about um, how each side did miss some opportunities to finish off one another. It's not a question of them missing the opportunities. It was what stood in their way or what disadvantages they had going into the battle. You know, yes, it's one thing for each side to have their advantages, but more often than not, there are circumstances beyond a commander's control that can often make or break the outcome of a battle. And I can only imagine seeing this battlefield in 1781, seeing the site marred by troops, dead and wounded, fallen horses, the equipment that was left behind. One has to wonder, how, how long will this carnage on the battlefield last? You know, wounded and dead soldiers can't just stay there forever. Shouldn't they be buried and be buried with some dignity, some honor for having um, made a sacrifice? Yes, well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, segment to Utah Springs. When I'm on the air again next, we're going to um, be learning about the um, aftermath. And, I'm, and I know many of you are thinking, aftermath, doesn't that sound like we're getting towards the end? Well, we are getting very close to the end. But we're going to learn more about the aftermath of Utah Springs. Thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again next. Uh, without you all, I'm not sure where I would be, but thank you again to all of you, my, ar my ardent 101 fellow uh, podcast listeners. Thank you again, and uh, stay safe.